0: I got snow in my pockets, went down again head first. Lace drill bits to my point shoes, pirouette through the hardwood chip pater. Night falls, day breaks. time has a funny kind of violence, and I'm trying to keep in mind it can leave you the way it finds you. Good grief.
1: That's singer, rapper, and writer, Dessa, singing Good Grief from her new CD, Chime. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. As a rapper, Dessa is the real deal. Fierce and propulsive, she layers words and rhythms into rich textures. Dessa got her start with the rap group Doomtree in 2005, an innovative collective she considers her musical brothers and teachers. But while rap might be the base of Dessa's work, it's not close to its totality. Dessa can put together lyrical, flowing a cappella arrangements for women's voices. She can let go with a ballad about heartbreak and bounce out a pop hook you can't let go of. She's contributed to the Hamilton mixtape with the song Celebration and to Lin-Manuel Miranda's song to raise money and awareness of the devastation in Puerto Rico, almost like praying. And did I mention she has a fascination with science? Dessa has given a talk at the Mayo Clinic, brought scientists and lyricists together during her residency at WNYC's Green Space, and most spectacularly, became the first rapper to perform with the Minnesota Orchestra in two sold-out evenings during which she detailed in story, song, and PowerPoint her work with neuroscientists to create a protocol to help her fall out of love.
2: I cut my teeth in the world of underground rap. And so when I got a call from the Minnesota Orchestra to do a full evening backed by 70-some players on stage, I was stoked and nervous. (laughs) So I spent a lot of months trying to design a show that could be interdisciplinary and tell a story. So the story that I told was about a really lousy, (laughs) really lousy romance. I had been in love with the same guy, for a really long time. He's a great dude. He also loved me. But it was one of those relationships that we just couldn't get right. You know, we tried for years, on again and off again, and it was always drama. And we we loved each other, but we couldn't make each other we didn't make each other very happy.
1: I've been there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I'd seen a TED talk by a scientist named Dr. Helen Fisher who had isolated these particular spots in the brain that were associated with romantic love. And that surprised me because I didn't know that there would be like specific spots in the brain that had that job. And I thought, well, okay, if it's localized, I wonder if I could find my love, maybe I could get it out. So I sent out a tweet asking if any neuroscientists would like to partner with me, if they would give me access to their fMRI labs, if I traded them for backstage passes and whiskey. And this woman named Dr. Cheryl Ullman took me up on it. And so I was able to get into her fMRI machine and actually take images like of the love as I felt it in my head. And after that, I partnered with... Our woman named Penny Jean Grace Fire who lives in Tampa and she's a neurofeedback clinician so she works usually with like kids with autism or maybe with epileptics uh, or people who are suffering through post-traumatic stress to change the way that their brains work <laughs> by allowing patients to watch their brain waves in real time on a screen and then to try to modify some of that activity through a series of sounds and lights so, I thought, okay, well, if this neurofeedback stuff can work for people with these localized brain issues, you know, like epilepsy and trauma, I wonder if we could try to use it on me, (laughs) on the loving centers of my brain that just do not seem to let go of this dude. And so that was the story I I told on stage at Orchestra Hall. And I used that narrative as a scaffolding, you know, on which I could place all these sad songs that I'd written about this guy over the course of, like, the last 10 years of songwriting. And then the players from the orchestra were kind enough to help me demonstrate some of the scientific protocol by the harpist, for example, played out the little neurofeedback chimes that Penny Jean's computer created when she and I were watching my brainwave. It was... And so with the help of the arranger for that show, whose name is Andy Thompson, I think we, we, we pulled off one of the, the most ambitious shows that I've been a part of anyway. It felt really good. And I, like a lot of artists you probably talk to, I'm, I'm a kind of perfectionist sort who's always sort of bummed <laughs> about how the last thing went. So that one
1: felt really good. Yeah, that was the, the most complicated project I think I've, I've done to date. This isn't the only project you've been involved with that centers on science. Now you studied philosophy as an undergraduate in college. So where where does this interest in science come from? I don't know why I like it so much. I've been
2: thinking about it lately, and I I was trying to like run the tape back in my head to figure out why I'm compelled by it. But I think I always have been. Not all of it. Like I, I'm no chemist, and I my eyes glaze. I, I don't I don't have the mind for that. But uh, but behavioral science. Oh man, I think. I think behavioral science feels like it lands at this really
1: interesting intersection of philosophy and experiment. And when you performed with the Minnesota Orchestra, you actually projected images of your brain. Yeah, I told Andy Thompson I was like, could you arrange the Ted theme
2: for the orchestra and I could put on one of those like stupid half headsets, you know, that everybody wears with a little foam tip and he was like, well, yeah, I mean, we don't want to get in- copyright trouble, but it'll sound almost like the TED theme. And he just did this brilliant job of like, of adding like, you know, all sorts of comedic moments in the music. But also he like burned all of the rap songs down to the ground and then rebuilt them for this full beast of a musical machine.
1: Exactly. I was just going to ask you about that because clearly you don't typically record with a full orchestra.
2: Right, right. And in hip hop, you're working in a in a form where the sound palette is particularly important. So a really good rap producer, my friend Laserbeak, for example, who's a member of a group called Doomtree, of which I'm also a member. And when we work together, I mean, these guys, to get the perfect snare sound, they go through
0: countless,
2: countless numbers of sampled snares, and they layer them. So, you know, sometimes that one or you know, if there's delay in it, that one hit that you hear on a record is the product of like there's a hand clap and then on top of the hand clap there's a small explosion and then on top of the small explosion there's also a real snare drum and then on top of that there's a snap. I mean they they just like curate these sounds. So a lot of times on a hip hop record you know the snare is different in every song and that sonic diversity is part of what makes the genre work and go and that's not how classical music works right? I mean it's not like you're gonna you're not gonna have a different snare for every song. In fact Snare drum is probably less important in all of classical m- music just generally. <laughs> um, so we wanted to make sure that the songs translated well. And to do that, I mean, if I imagine, It's like translating poetry or something, right? It's not a one-to-one correlation of of parts in a song. You're trying to figure out how with a very different musical palette to create a big swell. And sometimes that means, you know, with, with a huge layered string section. Whereas on the record, I'd done it by layering my own voice a few times. And we'd manipulated the volume or played something backwards to go right? Okay, well, how do we represent that sound with the palette of the orchestra? Andy was just masterful. He has this really rare talent, I think, to be able to take recorded stuff, get to the heart of it, and then redesign it
1: larger for orchestral presentation. You've been in Doomtree since 2005. For listeners who might not know Doomtree, can you describe who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah.
2: Um, Doomtree is a hip-hop collective from Minneapolis, and most of the members met, like, in their high school years. I met them shortly there afterwards. And and we just kind of forged this bond of art and friendship, and we didn't really sweat what to call it in the beginning. You know, like, is this a production entity? Is this an LLC? Those were not the questions we were asking. We were like, okay, you're going to— at rapping, and you're good at making beats, and you're also good at, at drawing and graphic design. How do we get a rad show? We should maybe make a t-shirt. Does anybody know somebody at Kinko's that'll copy this flyer for free? For us, it's just been this kind of, um, yeah, this kind of talent pool of love and music for for most of my adult life now. So as we exist today, you know, fast forward like 15 years, we're a record label and a seven-member Collective, who sometimes makes music altogether under the name Doomtree and sometimes makes solo records um, and 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 put them out on the doomtree label.
1: And in fact, your own solo album was just released called Chime. Was that album impacted by your scientific inquiry? You know, after
2: doing that that performance with the Minnesota Orchestra and going through this neurofeedback experiment, I made a concerted effort to, to write a different kind of song. I'd written a lot of Torch songs, and I'm proud of a lot of them, but I know that that's not the only kind of song to write. So on the, on the record, on Chime, um, I also tackle some of this philosophical stuff. There's a song about free will that references St. Thomas Aquinas called Velodrome. And um, there's a song called Good Grief about pain role and recovery. In
0: Took out the fuselage, the engine and both wings, but I'm willing to work for this. Just show me what it did, and I'm ready to hurt for this. I know exactly what they saying Good grief I want that good grief, the one that heals me. That leaves me clarified by fire when I'm burned clean, tempered by light and heat. by the dead of morning, I'll be
2: better for And then there's just some rap bangers, cause there's rap bangers.
1: How did the album come together?
2: You know, it's really varied. It's 11 songs. Some of them came together in the way that rap songs usually do, which is a producer like uh, like Laserbeak or one of my other Doomtree collaborators would make a beat, and then I'd listen to the beat. And I'd go through my notebooks of lyrics that I keep, where there's like little scraps, you know, so no full lyric sets, but maybe little images that I'd been interested in or, or overheard turns of phrase that I'd written down on an airplane. So I'll listen to this beat on repeat, and then I'll go through all these little scraps of lyrics to see if there's something that might fit the same kind of emotional tenor as the music that I'm listening to. And then I'll slowly put together the song, kind of like an archaeological dig, where you've got all these little tiny bones, and now you got to put them back into the, the order that they make a consignathe in. So it's kind of a mosaic process for me. So that's how most rap songs come together, at least when I'm writing them. But for this record, there was also, like, it's the first record on which I've produced, so... I went out and bought a, my first beat machine at Guitar Center, you know, having no idea how to use it and then spent like a lot of time and swear words reading the manual and furrowing my brow and going back and forth and pressing buttons on this thing. It's called a machine. I made my first beat that ended up being a song called Jump Rope and I was so insufferably proud of it. Manu- it was like it was like I had my own finger painting on my fridge. <laughs> it was like it was just like every time i met with my production team it was like cool well i did that you know i did this one like we know des you mentioned that you did this one
0: (laughs) girls on the black turn calling out the same games that i played it goes turn around, and jump, touch the ground, and jump. wake up to find work and look for love. But when that comes around, you jump.
2: I was just so excited. I've looked, I don't know, man. I just, beat making is so magical to me and has been such like a foreign skill set for so long. So I was disproportionately stoked to have anything to do with it on this record. And then one of the songs, uh, one of the songs that's that was um, an early single was called Fire Drills. And that one came together in a really unusual way, in that as I was preparing for a symphonic performance, um, where I wanted to debut a new song, Andy Thompson and I worked together to create a full orchestra composition, over which then I rapped and wrote a chorus to be sung by three singers. So that means that he had pages and pages and pages of of sheet music. You know, here's what we give to the pianist, and here's what we give to the cellists and the, the violists. I mean, he had, you know, a full orchestral score. And then after we performed it together, it felt like the thing might have legs as a rap song. So now we had to, like, reverse engineer a rap song out of a full orchestral score. That was an interesting musical exercise, most of it undertaken by Andy Thompson himself, but that was probably the weirdest one.
1: So we get the album and it's completed. Here it is. You're used to it. It seems organic and natural, but obviously a lot of thought and consciousness goes into putting it together. What considerations did you have?
2: Oh, sure. Some of the moments that are the most fun for me, maybe because they do sort of tap into this native interest in science, are the very last steps of making a record. So the first steps are the songwriting and getting the music right. And then after you've committed to the lyrics and to the production and to the performances that you like, you know, because very often I'll perform the same line, I don't know, you know, ten or twenty or or sometimes even thirty or forty times to get the performance you really like. After all that's done, then you go into the mixing and mastering phase, and uh, and some of that is just like so fascinating to me. So, to, like, if you listen to a record in your car, you know how you can kind of toggle through EQ settings. Yeah. You know, so it can be like this is the button that I press when I listen to talk radio, and this is for pop, and and so these guys are like wizards of that. You know what I mean? That they—it's not just kind of six settings or whatever. I mean, it's this limitless, these huge consoles that can manipulate everything. And so it's really interesting to me to watch someone who is such an audiophile, like the guy who masters our um, our records. His name is Bruce Templeton. And the guy who mixes them is named Joe Mabbitt. And to watch. Bruce Master, it's like, uh, I remember a few records ago that every time we played a new setting, right, every time he's changed some small feature of how the music is going to be treated before he represses he play, he'd take off his glasses. And I would say, okay, what's with the glasses thing? You know, is that a, maybe just a tick to kind of help him think? For him, he said it was because the glasses were ever so gently by virtue of resting on his face, pushing the pinna, the outer part of his ear forward. And that would change the way that he heard the music. So to get a perfectly pristine listen, he took off his glasses to restore his ears to their native shape. I mean, just so, like Princess and the P. you know, these are masterful listeners. And so one of the things that's always interesting to me is like vocal performances, also, the, the snare frequencies and the vi- and the string frequencies and the frequencies of my voice all live in the same region. So very often, if you do one thing to the snare drum, that'll really change the way that you perceive where the voice sits in the mix. Yeah, it's it's fascinating science. And then I think my very favorite thing is what you do at the, the final, final step is after you've mixed everything and mastered everything, you sit with your friend and you decide how much space there should be between each song on the vinyl. So the song ends, you know, the last note is struck, ah. and then you both snap or clap or poke one another when you think that the next song should start. And it's really fun to hear all those snaps land, very often at exactly the same instance, although none of us know why we're doing it.
1: What have you learned during that long association with Doomtree that you now can bring to your solo work?
2: Oh, man, I think the harder question would be like, what do you know that you haven't learned? <laughs> can you list one thing that you can do that is not informed by your time with Doomtree? And that might be like quilting. Um,
0: looking for a fight. The housewives of Gamora all boarded up from here to the border, sword and fallen on. Our swords are standing still. Heartbreak Hill. Uh, I'm on make a fortune in small bills To show that I can Get the back of my will Like the back of my hands I know hard work My back, my hands Yeah, both still hurt Like a catamaran Two skins One for the water One for the wind Like a battering ram I get it in I'll be
2: at it again They're everything And I mean that in the good and bad Like when you talk about your family, right? It is as long And as serious And is enmeshed in my life And is full of love and joy and pain As any of our most important Human relationships I mean, I've I've crowd surfed with those dudes. I've cried with those dudes. I've vibrated with with victory after full sold-out nights for the first time in big rooms. And I've like sat down on a hotel floor to pass a bottle and try to talk out whatever is wrong with us. They are my, my brothers. Like the, the other members of the group who are rappers are Cecil Otter, uh, Mike McLaughlin, Sims, and P.O.S. And there's also uh, Laser and Paper Tiger, who primarily do production. And... I think my understanding of, like, gender has largely been formed by tooling around in a van with those guys for for a good, a good chunk of my adulthood. Before I joined Doomtree, like, I didn't know what a snare drum was. I didn't know how to count measures. I didn't know that a measure in a bar were the same thing. I didn't know how to properly use a microphone. I didn't understand how different lives might work, lives that hadn't been lived in a middle-class loving house. To be honest, I think I would have been like snottier and more classist, if not for those affiliations, because we were all thrown together and it was only later that we realized like as an adult, you don't really spend all that much time with people who are different than you, you know, and who grew up in really different ways. That's not all that common. And I feel like all of my big presumptions about what success look like and what love looks like have been challenged
1: and strengthened by virtue of knowing those guys. There are very few women MCs in rap, which I'm sure offers challenges and opportunities for you.
2: Yeah, you're right. You know, I think a lot of people identify the former and not the latter. There
1: are opportunities. I mean,
2: being different, I think music or not, all of us, all of us turn to investigate novelty. That's why Buzzfeed works <laughs> with their with their alarming headlines. So yeah, I think when I'm in a crowded bar and I step up to a microphone to to rap, very often that's the first female voice that will have rapped that evening. And there is something, there's a, a curiosity, right, that that room full of drinking people might have for a moment to turn their heads, to say, eh, hang on for a second, let me just check this out. And as a musician, I mean, those are the moments you spend your whole life fighting for, is like more than anything, for me anyway. It's it's not the money, it's, it's the attention. It's how to try to earn my next audition, to earn my next dead bat I mean, I know I'm not going to connect with everybody, but it's that drive and that fight to try to say, listen for 30 seconds and see if you dig it. And if you don't dig it, move on. You know, I hope you find something else you dig. But the novelty has has benefited me. Um, Are there challenges with it? Yeah, for sure. And there are probably some that you could easily itemize without me doing so. But I think also just male or female. I think um, traveling this much makes me feel like I've got a privileged perspective on the world. I've been to a lot of places and I, because I'm working there, not just touring, you know, that, that provides you some opportunity to, ha- to have conversations other than those that you're going to have, like, at the beach and poolside, like, to have legitimate exchanges to widen my perception of the world. And on, on the other hand, it can be a lonely way to live. You know, you're not in any one place long enough to see the same people
1: regularly. So you are your own company for a lot of your life. Right. In a New York Times article that you wrote, you called it an adventure tax, which I thought was a great term.
2: Kind of, it's that. It's there's something on the opposite side of the scale for all these for all this rad stuff, and it is rad, but it's lonely. I think too sometimes. No pets. That's hard. <laughs> I don't. That's true. I don't have pets. I tried to keep a house plant. It was a basil plant, and I named him Milagro, which is miracle in Spanish. And then uh, my mom was like, you know, they aren't super hardy, uh, you know, might not be alive when you come back two weeks later. So I took him with me on tour, but he died in my cup holder.
1: <laughs> you came to rap through poetry slams. Was that your first time on stage? Yeah, it was. And um, I was
2: really nervous. I, I bought a pair of um, satin pants for one of my first competitions because I, I thought they made my butt look great. I was like, these are great pants. And I didn't realize it because they're so shiny. Shiny material shows movement so readily in bright lights, right? And so my knees were shaking on stage. And then if you had a footage of that evening, it would be like a still torso and then like a sparkling waterfall (laughs) (laughs) below the waist, just constant distracting motion. And I still get really nervous. I used to think that would go away. Like, okay, well, you're going to put in your 10,000 hours. What are you going to do? Get nauseously nervous your whole life? The answer is, yeah, (laughs) yes, you will. But now I'm better at performing nervous, I think. And I, don't wear, I do not wear satin pants. So,
1: And now you know you can perform through that fear.
2: Yeah, I do not find it to be the case that, that being really nervous makes my stuff better. It constricts your voice, right? I can't hit the low notes right away. But now I know to not put the lowest notes at the beginning of the set. But I know that, you know, within 90 seconds my shoulders will drop a little bit and, and within two songs I'll have my, my voice back. And my heart will slow down.
1: Experience is a great teacher. When you first started to perform with Doomtree, clearly you were scared then, too, as you just said. But was it a different feeling when you were up there because you're up there with other people?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's also, like, there's so many of us, there's seven members of Doomtree, that it's like we're kind of our own audience and party, too. So there's a lot of times listening to one of the other guys in Doomtree perform, like, before it's my turn to go up, you know, to take the next verse or to sing the next song performing in a group that large, there's this nice rhythm of being able to step out of the spotlight for a few minutes while somebody else takes his turn and then to step back in. You get these reprises, you know, where you can kind of recollect yourself. So if your ponytail fell down or if you're really thirsty or if you jumped a lot in that last song and just need to catch your breath, there's all these natural, built-in moments to do that, which you do not get if you are the front person of your own show. Then you have to figure out how to really make every, every second, make sure that you're giving something for every second on, on stage for your hour and a half set.
1: Right, no time to sit back. Yeah,
2: I mean, you don't want to waste people's time. So even taking a sip of water, try to make sure something is happening that rewards people's attention because attention is a serious thing to ask from a room full of people.
0: I'm building a from Balsam.
1: Dessa, you're a triple threat because you're a composer, you're a writer, and you're a performer. And I know that the three, in some ways, are interchangeable, but do you feel more at home? In one? In one? In one, yeah.
2: For a long time, I felt more at home as a writer, working for the page. I thought I was a really good essayist, and I thought I was an okay slam poet, and I was frustrated by the fact that I couldn't get any purchase anywhere, trying to figure out how to be a writer. Now, many years later... I probably can see the the flaws a little more clearly in that early writing, so I know where they lie. And I've been surprised at how much, uh, I don't know, how much how much time has changed my relationship to performance. I'm a lot more extroverted than I used to be, and I think a lot, I think that's because I've spent a lot of time behind a merch table every night, while on tour anyway, learning how to talk to strangers and uh, how to engage them quickly. Not only just transactionally in like, hey, what's up, I want to buy a T-shirt? But also in in listening to very real stories that people want to talk about after hearing a sad song, you know? Maybe, maybe they had a really hard breakup or maybe they just lost their dad. Learning how to engage in those conversations, which, you know, there's only two and a half minutes to have, right? And they know it too. It's like, this is our one chance to be human beings together, so let's try. So now I feel more comfortable on stage. Like, I know I'm a really strong performer, I know that I'm not a strong performer in the way that an opera singer is really strong, where there's these perfect technical performances that have to be delivered, you know, eight times a week or or six times a week. That's not my skill set, but being honest and ferocious and feeling things that are real and not manufactured on stage, I'm good at that, and I believe that people can tell when you mean it. I don't know exactly the mechanisms, how we know it, you know, but I think all of us have had an experience of watching a performer go through the motions or move their arms and face in a way that they're hoping conveys sadness but you can tell they don't feel it this is just what they do during this part of the set and I I think my talent lies in being able to really feel things in real time and then emote them and trust that they'll connect with people who've had similar experiences
1: What's your background? Where's your family musical? Did you come from a literary family? What? Who are they? Who are your people?
2: <gasps> <laughs> my mom grew up in the Bronx, in the projects in the Bronx. She's a New York Puerto Rican, and she moved to the Midwest for a gig in broadcasting. She moved to a place, a city called Duluth, which is a few hours north of Minneapolis. And there she met my dad. She has this beautiful singing voice. She doesn't really play instruments, but she has this amazing singing voice. My dad, meanwhile, had been living in Duluth, and he is a, a guitarist, a classical guitarist, and he played an instrument called the lute, which is which is like a an old, ancient guitar. So they're both, like, liberal arts people, if that makes sense. They're both curious. They were both worried about financial security, but neither of them was, like, fundamentally motivated by by money, you know? My dad was a was, um, classic Renaissance guy. Like, he was fascinated by flight. He ended, after he stopped being a musician, he ended up becoming a, a glider pilot, so he flies motorless planes around. And, and my mother had a collection of uh, little leather-bound books of all of Shakespeare's plays, so... I remember when I was like 11, lighting candles, and with my best friend, we'd read through the, the last scene of Othello, which was sort of like titillating and weird because I got to call her a strumpet <laughs> and killer. <laughs> and yeah, both of my parents, I think, were interested in, in art, but neither of them were like really tuned into current pop
1: trends. You'd hear music in your house.
2: Yeah, my dad would practice his guitar playing a lot of songs that whose names I don't know but the sound of them I think really got into my head and informed the kind of harmonies I like. I tend to like fourths. So it's like a a sadder to me to my ear anyway. It's like a more interesting uh, interval than a than a fifth. I admit that I don't really know music theory so I'm just parroting what people have told me about my own preferences, but I know that the kind of sounds that I heard him play were melancholy and the kind of shapes of those melodies were those that that sometimes I've tried to recreate in the pop stuff that I write.
1: Well, your songs are often sad. I know. Yeah. (laughs) I know. And what do your parents think? What did they think when you told them you were going into the music biz and what are they thinking these days? As you could probably guess, it wasn't as stoked in the very beginning. My mom was like... I
2: thought you were going to go to law school. And my dad was, uh, he had concerns about the genre. You know, he was like, I don't quite get it. I don't understand why you're attracted to a genre that, that uh, doesn't seem to think too highly of women near as I can tell. And so to answer my dad's concern in particular, it was something that I wanted to answer well. You know what I mean? My dad and I are close. My mom and I were close. And, uh, I think, I think what they think matters to me more than it does to most adults. I really do care what my parents think. So, for my dad, I made a mixtape of this, the rap song, the kinds of rap songs that he might not find. There's some really regressive stuff out there for sure, Dad, but I think that that's overrepresented in mass media. There's really thinking, thoughtful, politically potent, and emotionally moving rap music that just doesn't get the same kind of airplay. So, we sat down together and I played him a mixtape of the other kind of rap. And now they're super stoked. Like my dad, when he came to the orchestral show and he wanted to come to all the rehearsals and it was really, really sweet. And I can always tell where he is in the audience because he's the only one who yells, brava.
1: (laughs) With Chime, Dessa, what will make or what does make this album successful for you? What, What does it look like? The kind of music that I want to make
2: it has taken a long time to learn how to do, you know, to say, oh, I really like these harmonies that I heard when my dad was playing the lute in our sewing room. I want that to be part of my music. I also really like those crazy machine gun drums in Outcast Bombs Over Baghdad. So I want that to be part of my music, to try to find, like, a way to combine really varied sounds that doesn't sound like it's reaching or like it's fusiony and lame or it's trying to be some big concept recombination of of elements just to write a good song using varied components that are drawn from a lot of different traditions and and genres. That's been a skill that's that's taken a long time to hone. and I think I think on chime it's the best job that I that I've managed to do yet with my team of collaborators uh, due in large part to the skill of, of Andy and and laserbeak who I've mentioned already like, this album, I think for the first time, sounds like it's like it's a cohesive whole, even though there's these moments where I layer my voice, you know, to make a makeshift choir at the end in this huge vocal burst, right? And then at other times, it's just me, you know, swearing like a sailor and, and bragging like a rapper. Like, this album feels like it's one unified project. Also, I'm I think I'm, as a person and as a musician, taking more risks and, and more comfortable with that. Now that you've got some road behind you, it's easier. I think the prospect of, of taking a misstep is more palatable because you've already taken enough right ones that it's like, well, OK, I, I missed that pitch, but I, I've hit others and I'll hit others again. And so I think good musical work and good artistic work and good living is done when people have some appetite for risk. And I feel like I'm working hard to increase that appetite in my own life and in my own career.
1: And I think that's a good place to leave it. Dessa, thank you so much. It really was just such a pleasure learning more about you. Thanks. And thank you for so. giving me your time. Thanks so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. That's rapper, singer, and writer Dessa. Her new album is called Chime. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Please subscribe to Artworks wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a rating on Apple. It really does help people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.